We are the richest country in the history of the world, and we have the most expensive healthcare system in the world. Yet we have the worst health statistics of all the 30 richest countries in the world. The maternal mortality rate for all U.S. women is about 33 per 100,000 live births. For black women, it is about 70. The maternal mortality rate in the European countries averages eight. The Scandinavian countries, two. The U.S. ranks 42nd in life expectancy among the countries of the world, with Cubans having a higher life expectancy. No matter how you look at it, our healthcare system stinks. It is a fraud. We need the real McCoy, the real McCoy, the real McCoy. What is wrong with our healthcare system that we are performing so poorly? The answer is simple. The purpose of our healthcare system is about making profit for health insurance companies, big hospital chains, pharmaceutical corporations, and increasingly private equity firms, not for the health and well-being of our people. No matter how you look at it, our healthcare system stinks. It is a fraud. We need the real McCoy. The real McCoy, the real McCoy, the real McCoy. Welcome everyone. This I'm Claire Cohen, Dr. Claire Cohen, and this is um, the real McCoy, a podcast about healthcare. Okay, so today we're going to talk about Medicare, that federal program to fund Medicare for the elderly and the disabled. We will talk about why and how it was created how it was evolved over the years. Then we will discuss whether or not we still have a universal public health care coverage system for the elderly or not. If we don't, what do we really have and why? Who has what and does it matter? What are the pros and cons of how things are evolving? And finally, what would a real Medicare system look like? What would be the real McCoy? And would such a program be possible in the United States and how? To discuss all of this with me today is my guest, Kay Tillo. Kay is currently chair of Kentuckians for Single-Payer Healthcare and a member of the steering committee of National Single-Payer. She is also a member of Physicians for a National Health Program. She is a union activist who has worked with nurses and other healthcare workers in organizing and collective bargaining. So Kay, what is the history and social context behind why Medicare was created back in the 1960s. Who was fighting for it and why, and who was against it? Hi, Claire. I'm really happy to be invited to your podcast and to discuss uh, this topic, which is very uh, near and dear to my heart um, because I'm involved in the work to get a healthcare system that works for all of us. Uh, Back in 1965 was uh, when Medicare was passed. That was during the Johnson administration. And uh, basically it was passed for two reasons. Uh, One was that there was a a majority, a supermajority in the Congress, but mostly because the insurance industry didn't want the seniors. They have more diseases and more conditions, they're more expensive. And because of the cost, the insurance industry was not clamoring to cover them. And secondly, and even more important, 
was uh, the civil rights movement had created a massive base of citizen activism that was uh, demanding social justice and demanding healthcare for everyone. And it was that confluence of uh, a federal government program and uh, active citizens justice movement that made Medicare possible. And it was, it was a publicly funded system for seniors. Um, at the time, uh, the American Medical Association, which was the Association of Physicians, was absolutely opposed to it. Uh, they uh, did not relent until the very end. Um, and it, there was so much at stake here because at the time, our hospitals were uh, segregated and many, many hospitals in both the North and the South uh, did not allow African-Americans to enter. So the beautiful story of in Medicare, in addition to its, the people getting covered who were over 65, is that the, the uh, implementation of Medicare uh, included with it the demand the hospitals comply with the Civil Rights Act prior to being authorized to collect that money. And that confluence between a federal program that would give them the money to sustain their hospital and an active civil rights movement that was de determined that no one would be certified unless that hospital actually did allow uh, integration and open its doors, made for a, a major transformation in our country. Okay, well, so it sounds like from what you're saying that uh, in the very beginning, um, before Medicare, situation, the situation was dire for senior citizens, also for poor people and black people, and that a big uh, part of getting Medicare was the civil rights movement. And I think that's something a lot of people nowadays don't realize how, how the civil rights movement pushed uh, for that to occur. Um, there is a, a documentary about it called um, Power to Heal. And I would encourage people to watch that um, so that they can get a sense of how strong a role the civil rights movement played. So, we know that medic the Medicare program, as it was originally conceived, has changed a lot from its original implementation over the years. Can you tell us how and what has changed and why? What were the forces pushing for these changes and what have been the ramification of these changes for senior citizens and the disabled? Well, uh, a lot has changed over the years. I think the one thing is that the doctor's uh, organization, the AMA, uh, found that uh, uh, most doctors began to accept Medicare. And so there was a change in, in that the, the program became a part of the culture of the country. And now almost every physician accepts Medicare and is glad to be able to get the payment that Medicare brings. Uh, but there were some things that happened. Uh, for instance, Medicare has become the place uh, 
for the people that the insurance companies don't want. Uh, and of course that happened, you know, over time. So they added to it, the people who needed kidney dialysis, who were suffering from kidney failure, were put into Medicare. The insurance companies don't want them, they're expensive to take care of, you know, some compassion placed them into the Medicare program. And uh, uh, the same thing happened with uh, people who are determined to be permanently and totally disabled, except they have to wait two years. Uh, two years of permanent and total disability gets you into Medicare as well, which, you know, is, uh, is better that it's expanded a little bit, but to uh, other people who just really are desperate for care. The uh, bad thing that has happened to Medicare along the way is that uh, the private companies have been given entrance into this publicly funded program. Uh, first through something called Medicare plus choice, you know, the ideology that says, you know, if you bring the private groups in uh, and put it on the market, the competition will make excellence and the competition will lower the price. And so on that excuse, Medicare has allowed private companies into the program none of which bore out to be true. It did not make it uh, cheaper, it made it more costly, and it did not make it better, it made it worse. But uh, the most recent iteration of this private entrance came in 2003, when uh, the Congress passed the Medicare Modernization Act and created Medicare Advantage and uh, which is now the privatized program that is siphoning the funds away, delaying and denying care and causing havoc and stress throughout our system. Uh, it's, uh, the result is that people, seniors are forced, forced to make a choice between traditional Medicare which costs too much on a monthly basis and leaves out too much, <laughs> uh, but gives better coverage and something that is less on a monthly basis, which is Medicare Advantage. But if you get really sick, you will get less care and you will have barriers to your care because there are private authorizations, et cetera. So we now have a system where seniors have the stress of having to choose between things that are not good choices. And that's really what we have to do something about. Okay. So my understanding, and you'll, and you'll tell me if this is correct, that at this point, half of all Medicare beneficiaries are on Medicare Advantage, that privately managed care insurance program you were talking about. And lots of poor and working class Black people that I have talked with, um, because I talk with a lot of people both in groups and individually, have told me that they actually like their Medicare Advantage. It's affordable, as you said, whereas traditional Medicare with its expensive co-pays, deductibles, and Medicaid gap policies is not. They're able to get good basic health care, including dental, um, get their teeth cleaned, glasses, and, and hearing checkups, whereas in traditional Medicare, they're not. 
So when I start talking about the problems with Medicare uh, Advantage, uh, they say to me, well, I like my Medicare Advantage. Uh, it's working for me. And that other stuff you're talking about, traditional Medicare, it's too expensive. I can't afford it. Why should I fight for or push for medic traditional Medicare for all and risk losing what I have now? And some people even have raised the issue of some people don't seem to realize that Medicare Advantage and Medicare, the whole thing is a government program. It's just that Medicare Advantage is a private partner, public partnership. And so they'll say something like um, they don't trust the government to design a program that really meets their needs anyway. So they'd rather have the insurance companies involved. So what have you had people say things like this to you? And when you do when they do, what's your response? How do you what do you say to them? About mm. the <laughs> well, you ask a lot of questions and uh, it's too com complex, which is a big reason for the confusion. I think first we should say that no one should be blamed for the choice that they make because no one is functioning in an era where we have really free choice. Uh, we have the vast majority of our seniors are living on very modest incomes. Our pensions are inadequate. Our social security is inadequate. So we have people who are living in a situation where making the ends meet on a monthly basis is a difficult thing to do. And it's under those circumstances that people are forced into the Medicare Advantage plans, which can be cheaper on a monthly basis. Um, but once you get sick, they can be more costly for you because they can have uh, many, many problems. So I think what we should talk about is why this is a bad situation for all of us. People on Medicare, either in Medicare Advantage or in traditional Medicare, can go bankrupt because of the expense. That's the reality. We don't have adequate protection anywhere. Uh, but I think we have to be uh, cognizant of how this thing is working. If you're in Medicare Advantage, um, the company takes 15% of the Medicare money for administration and for profit. If you are in traditional Medicare, it's only 2% for administration. The rest of it goes to care. So we have a situation where there's a siphoning of the money into private hands. And this money is our tax dollars that we pay into the system, right? That's right. So they're it's taking the our tax dollars, these companies, and using it pure for their profit. Right. That's exactly the situation. And the difference is that if you are in traditional Medicare, when you see a doctor, that doctor submits a bill directly to Medicare and is paid. When you are in Medicare Advantage, you no longer are in the public Medicare system. Now, public Medicare is paying your insurance plan, Aetna, Humana, Cigna, United Healthcare, whatever, a monthly payment for you. 
and they have a contract. And so when you use a doctor, that insurance company has to decide to pay and can decide not to. And while in most circumstances they pay, I mean, that's why, you know, they have to, right? Mm -hmm. But they have the ability to force prior authorization, to limit the network of your doctors, et cetera. Now, what has happened is when that company is getting, and let's let's take ballpark, from $1,000 to $3,000 a month for your care, what it sets up is a contradiction between your care and their profit. Because if they can deny care, then they keep more of that money. So that's not anything good for any of us to have private for-profit companies rather than physicians and patients making the decision about the care. That's, that's the problem with why Medicare Advantage uh, is siphoning the money from the public coffers and it's not saving any money. It was supposed to save money and make for better care. And it doesn't, you know, we have these recent reports. Well, the Schaefer Institute, the Schaefer um, uh, uh, study at the University of Southern, South, uh, Southern California says that by their estimate, the Medicare Advantage companies are overpaid 75 billion annually. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. That figure is so huge. No uh, wonder they call Medicare their cash cow. I've I've, <laughs> I've seen that in some articles where there where these big insurance companies are calling it their cash cow. Right, Claire. You know, that was in um the New York Times article in October of 22. Uh, talked about the cash monster was insatiable. And it talked about those overpayments to Medicare Advantage. So we've got the problem of overpayments to the private companies in Medicare Advantage. And then we have the problem of denials. Uh, while they don't deny everything, they deny a percentage of things that, uh, that people need. And that can cause huge stress when you cannot get the care that you need. And on top of that, there are a multitude of other problems. If you go into Medicare Advantage uh, when you first turn 65, at that point, you would have a choice to go into traditional Medicare or into Medicare Advantage. And if you choose traditional Medicare, you can buy a Medigap, you know, a supplementary policy that would cover the things that aren't paid for under Medicare Part A and B. And you can buy it without regard to pre-existing conditions. Now, once you make your initial choice, if you go into the Medicare Advantage and a year later you find that's not what you need, now, when you want to change back to traditional Medicare, you can be subjected to underwriting. That means they can ask you about your conditions. 
It means that uh, they can't charge you more for the Medigap uh, supplement. And a lot, and a lot of us senior citizens have underlying <laughs> conditions. As a senior citizen myself, I know. Um, yeah. So it sounds like if you choose the Medicare Advantage, it kind of you're kind of locked in because now it's going to cost even more to try to go if you if you realize that you've made a mistake to go back. Um, right. Or they could refuse to sell you a policy at all because of your conditions, because you've lost that initial protection. And this is something that is never in the advertisements. No one tells you that this may be a permanent decision where you're going to be locked into a plan. So as you've been talking about this, I've noticed that What's come up again and again is that it's not that traditional Medicare is so perfect. And we know, because we know that for many people, it's expensive. It doesn't cover everything. There's some problems with traditional Medicare. Why are those there? Why are there those problems? Do they have to be? Is it possible that we could have a, uh, a Medicare uh, program that covered everything, that covered everything from cradle to grave? And what would be your vision of the kind of Medicare program that would work for not only seniors and and um, disabled people, but, but would work for all of us? What what would you like to see as the real McCoy in a, in a single payer Medicare for all system? I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> yes, we need to move forward, not backward. You know, Medicare has some of what we need. In other words, it was inclusive and it was publicly funded, uh, which was a good thing. And it was across the country and everybody over 65 was included. Uh, what it's missing is long-term care. You know, it doesn't pay. We have a terrible system in this country where you have to be impoverished to get Medicaid to pay for nursing home care. And that's a terrible thing for families to lose the ability to pass on what they have gained. And uh, Medicaid is uh, uh, inadequate as it is. So Medicare is good, but it doesn't cover long-term care. It still has copays and deductibles, which are barriers to care for people. It still has, um, a lack of dental coverage. My goodness, we need dental coverage. Dental, our teeth <laughs> are a part of our body. And we all know that terrible story about the youngster in Washington, D.C. who died from an abscess of a tooth because he couldn't get dental care. I mean, dental care is absolutely crucial to your health. So we need dental care. We need eyeglasses. We need hearing we need no copays and no deductibles, and we need a system that is publicly funded and publicly funded on a progressive basis. Because as we it is now, our healthcare system costs double what it costs in other industrialized uh, wealthy countries. So we're paying too much and we're getting too little. We're seeing that our life expectancy is sinking we're now four to six years behind other countries. We're not living as long. We don't have a system 
of health that makes this care that we have the ability to give. I mean, we have fabulous doctors and fabulous knowledge about care. We have the ability to have the best healthcare system in the world. Instead, we have the most expensive and worse conditions. We have more people who die from conditions that were amenable to treatment, which we should all be ashamed of. And all of us should get together and demand that our country do what is right for the whole nation and for all of us. And that is to give an improved Medicare for all, remove the private for-profit system from our healthcare and have a system that's democratically controlled by the communities, by the people, by the decisions are made by physicians and patients with no middleman in the middle and the ability to bring the cost down by removing the, the massive administrative and profit-making costs that are in our system today. And it sounds like you're saying we could also do away with co-pays and deductibles or almost completely away with deductibles. And I, my understanding is we also wouldn't have any kind of restrictive networks. We could see any doctor you wanted go to any place you wanted to. That's right. Freedom. Freedom. You know? True freedom. <laughs> freedom to choose. The, yes. Yes. Freedom to, to choose insurance companies. Who wants to do that? Yeah. Freedom to choose the doctors and facilities and providers we want. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Who said that we should be subjected to this control by those who are making money off of our public system? It's an absolute outrage. We have to do this through enacting a piece of legislation that will set up this system that gets those parasites out of our system and off of our backs and allows us to have a humane and compassionate system where doctors don't have to spend their day checking off things that are solely for the need of the insurance company and not for the patient. Yeah, so I understand that there have been, there has over the decades, legislation has been introduced into Congress uh, for this system that you're talking about, for such a system. Where are we now with this? And what can we, what can we regular folk do to push our legislatures and our politicians, our congressmen and women to have the will to make something like this happen here in the United States? Is it possible to make make it happen? And what can what what do we have to do to make that happen? Well, we've had uh, efforts to introduce legislation. Uh, Congressman Ron Dellums actually introduced a National Health Service bill, and I can't remember when, but I think probably way back in the 70s or so. Um, and I think for a while, Barbara Lee, who succeeded him, introduced that bill, but that's no longer uh, out there. Uh, what was introduced in 2003 was a bill by Congressman John Conyers mm -hmm. that was a national improved Medicare for all and based on the proposal by Physicians for a National Health Program which is a proposal for a national single payer system 
that removes co-pays and deductibles, that publicly funds healthcare on a progressive basis, and that brings care to everyone in the nation. And that was HR 676 and Congressman uh, John Conyers introduced that every new Congress from two th I think 2003 to 2017. And uh, of course, people built a movement around pushing for that legislation to be enacted. I think uh, we got up to where we had 124 co-sponsors of that legislation. And then uh, after uh, Congressman Conyers was no longer there, uh, I think the bill was first passed to Keith Ellison, and then to then it was uh, uh, Pramila Jayapal, uh, the Congresswoman from Seattle, who now has the single payer legislation. It's, uh, well, I don't remember the number, but it, it's the it improvement. Yeah, I, I actually just I think it just got a new number. So. Yeah, it's had several different numbers, but it's the improved Medicare for all bill. And uh, it's a good single payer bill. It's missing some of the things that we had. Uh, uh, it still allows the for profit hospitals to function and those should be converted because there's worse care in for profit hospitals and uh, it costs us more. But uh, it's basically a single payer bill, and I would urge people to get your congressperson to back that bill. Uh, and uh, I urge also your congresspeople to take it seriously. I mean, one of the problems that we have is that some people say, well, you know, it's not possible to pass it now. So let's go and do something else. Let's pass, you know, expansion of Medicaid or some other incremental thing. Well, we have to begin to say that if, if single payer, national improved Medicare for all is the only way to solve this for all of us, then we have to make that the demand. Yeah. That demand has to be on the nation's agenda. And why shouldn't it be? when you know dozens of other countries have solved this problem and have adopted single-payer health care why shouldn't we have it as well and anything short of that whole removal of the for-profit system is going to leave us high and dry and without all the care that we need so that's the push so it sounds oh, like it sounds like people should be making phone calls, should be sending letters, emails, organizing. My my place of worship, uh, at once a month, they organize uh, a letter writing uh, email campaign where people come and sit down, organize that in your church. It sounds like pe in your community civic group or your club, it sounds like people should just, when you go to town halls, people should just be pushing that. Because right now, uh, everyone knows that our medical, our system is not working for us and leaving a lot of people in debt. Well, I think this has been a very informative and enlightening interview, Kay. And I really thank you very much uh, uh, for your information. And I, I, I have found, I hope other people have also found it very informative and enlightening. And I guess, 
some I'm pretty sure some people are saying to themselves, now, how can I reach that Kate Tillo and talk more with her about this subject? So how could people reach you? Um, uh, where can they go to get more information from you? Well, if they go to kyhealthcare.org, KY is for Kentucky. That's where I am in Louisville. KYHealthcare.org is the website of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. And on that website, you will find my email, my phone number, and all of the posts that uh, we've been trying to collect and some of the things that we've been working to do. So I would welcome uh, talking and working with people around the country who want to push this idea forward and make it a reality. We have to make possible what is right rather than change the demand. Okay. All right. So I hope everybody has uh, found this episode informative and enjoyed it as much as I have. Thank you very much, Kay. In the next episode, we will be discussing Black Americans and single-payer health care. See you then. <laughs>